This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. Through our programming, we strive to amplify the voices of those who have historically been underrepresented. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us this evening, the Cinco de Mayo. Uh, I have been looking forward to this conversation, Kari. I really have. You have done something really special with this book. It really speaks to our communities and to our hearts. It's very timely and valuable for the times that we're living in. And so I just appreciate you joining me in conversation. I feel special because this is your first (laughs) book and I'm the first person to interview you. How does it feel? It's out there now. Oh, thank you. It it feels... um... It kind of feels like this very calm moment because it's so much, it's been so, so much lead up to it. And now, and now it's here and I can and share, I can here. actually talk to people about this. So I'm yeah, that's Thank right. You. And so I want to start at the very beginning of the book when I read a book and I want to show you that I've eaten this book like a piece of chocolate cake. It is so delicious. <laughs> the first wow. thing I look at is the dedication. Because I think in the dedication, you can sometimes learn something personal about the author. Mm -hmm. And you dedicate this book to your grandma, your maternal grandma, Besta, right? And you thank her and all the elders who have shared their wisdom, but also remain open for our possibilities for the future. And I wanted to ask you why you dedicated this book to your grandma, (laughs) Besta. It's really curious what your relationship was like or how she inspired you in this work. Yeah, I I love that you opened with that question, actually. Um, I had the opportunity when I was, um, I guess, 19. It was the first time I had moved away from home. And I ended up moving into the same apartment building for university as my grandparents lived in. And so I would go up every morning and have breakfast with my grandma and grandpa, who were called Besta and Papa. And um, I remember... I think I just had this distinct understanding that she, even though she was old and she's still alive, she's 101. Wow. She is not set in her ways. She has retained this open-mindedness to making the world better. And I remember there was one thing she did to preserve, um, To she was trying not to produce so much garbage. And I remember thinking like, Wow. And she said, she told me that she had just started that practice the week before that she was trying to produce less garbage. And I thought, wow, at this age, she's, she's forming new habits, even though she won't be around to see the world that she helps to create. So Amazing. Um, I think that's why I was inspired. Yeah. And well, she's, I, I, I talk a lot about vibrancy in this book and she is the epitome of vibrancy, even now at 101. Is she with us tonight? I, I don't think she's online. No, oh, I don't think okay. so. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, big love to Besta. Thank yeah. you for inspiring uh, your granddaughter. And certainly a lot of that goodness was passed down to you. You put this book out into the world. And why now? Why this topic? And why now? 
Oh, uh, that's such a big question. I think there are a couple of different ways I could answer it. Um, the first, the first way uh, I think has to do with just so many global events that have been unfolding, um, not only in the past couple of years while I've been writing the book, but um, when I first started exploring the idea of critical hope during my PhD. Um, lots of headlines about systemic racism and mass gun violence and now, um, you know, with climate crises and there's so much to be um, to to feel hopeless about, and I think I when I found this concept of critical hope, which was coined by Paulo Freire, I, I feel like I found something that could grapple with all of those truths and still, in a genuine way, try to form a, a vision of a future that could be better. And 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 I think sometimes I didn't always um, connect to notions of hope that were about that were rooted in like toxic positivity or or privilege or like a naive understanding of hope. So I, I think for me, critical hope was was that thing that I I wanted to explore. Um, and and then from a more personal stance, um, I began I I literally signed the contract to write this book um, with my publisher um, when I was having a miscarriage. I was at the end, it was day seven of, of my miscarriage. And I think that the emptiness and, and deep sadness from which I started writing this book made it better. Um, I think had I begun this book from a place of really feeling like doe-eyed and hopeful and happy about the world, it might have been somehow more somehow disingenuous because mm -hmm. I was like this empty receptacle that I, I needed to like fill with understandings of hope and grappling with some of the grief and anger and regret that comes through struggle. And um, yeah, so in a way it was the thing that I created instead of what I had thought I was going to create. Um, so for me, it has a, a deeply personal connection as well. And that is so clear when you read this book. And I think it's what makes it so special that you are able to share from your lived experience. And we'll get into that much more uh, as we go mm -hmm. through the book. Um, in such a powerful, authentic, and real way. So you immediately connect with you. and. Also, you're a scholar, you're an academic, it's very well researched. So there's this balance in the book between personal story, not just mm -hmm. yours, but community members um, and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, deep scholarly research. So I appreciated that. Thank you. The other quality that I appreciate about you as an author is that you are a word girl. You are into the etymology <laughs> of words and you talk about the difference between like critical and hope and praxis and practice and grapple. And all throughout the book, you make it very clear what you're speaking about and give a refreshed, I think, definition of some of these concepts. So why don't we start there and you tell us what critical hope is? Sure. Oh, you know, it's funny. This is the first interview I'm having about this book. And every time I've come across somebody that says, what is your book about? I thought I, I need to practice this more. But I think critical hope as a concept, um, it 
is a, it is an approach to hope that is rooted in action and is concerned with systemic change. And um, I like to, in the opening few pages of the book, um, I wanted some somehow like a human entry point to what is critical hope from my perspective. And what I came up with was it, I, I think I'd always been told that you have, you're either hopeful and that makes you naive or you are critical aware of a lot of injustices and suffering in the world and that may somehow makes you cynical um mm -hmm. and <clears throat> i feel like i was constantly being told to choose which role i was going to play are you this person or are you this person you can't be both you, and when i found critical hope and started exploring it and and building out building it out in ways i wanted to build it out i think I discovered this space, I, I describe it as like the meadow where two seekers meet and become one. And, and for me, there was, there was a little bit of uh, a peacefulness in, the in allowing the tension between these two different characters to play out. But then to recognize that it's not just about two characters, it's about like once they are, you know, wrestling or grappling with one another or making love, they form all of these new possibilities and these new understandings of how we can view the world. And it was, it was like, for me, I don't have to listen to what other people have, you know, in academia that you have to be this one thing or, or elsewhere that you have to be another. It was like, this lets me be who I am. This allows me to hold my multiple beings in the same framework. Um, so for me, that's what critical hope is. Mm -hmm. I think it's a message that we need right now with everything that is transforming in the world. Like right? these are critically transformative, auspicious, uh, desperate times. You know, it's we're holding all of that complexity, and uh, I think that the message that you bring in the book helps people move through that difficult space and to even acknowledge that it's difficult. Like throughout the book, you not you acknowledge the marriage or the the um, uh, the coming together of those lovers, right? Of critical and mm -hmm. hope. So it doesn't erase. And so what would you say is the opposite of critical hope? Because as you just said, like people think of hope as sunny side up and it has to be either or. And so how would you frame the yeah. opposite of cr critical hope? What would that be? I, I don't know the answer to that fully. My, my mind immediately went to toxic positivity. Uh -huh. um, just, um, well, I, you know, I think of, I think of some of these Instagram um, influencers that I, that I have seen online and they say, I just manifested the life I wanted to live and here it is. Yes. And, um, you know, there is this idea that if you just dream it, it will become. And I think that's a, I, I do agree that imagining a, an amazing outcome is a really important part of achieving that reality. And I think, I, I don't think you can deny that, but often what, what toxic positivity or naive forms of hope don't take up is how, you can't untether the ability to manifest something, a positive outcome, for example, you can't untether that from systemic inequality. You can't untether mm -hmm. it from the society in which a person lives or the body that they inhabit um, and how society values or doesn't value that body. 
so I, I, I do think that critical hope is, is a little bit of a, of a talk back to toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually holds space for um, not only the Paulo Freire would call it the politicity of of hopefulness, but the fact that it it has the characteristic of being political, but also it holds space for grief and and anger at injustices and, you know, um, some of the, you know, guilt that some people might feel as they walk through the world. I think there's there's space, there's space. You and I were talking before we started tonight about the feeling of spaciousness and and that's how I imagine critical hope as well. Yeah, at some point in the book, I have a note here that you also said that critical hope can be put down and returned to again. And what did you mean mm-hmm. by that? I thought that was really powerful. Well, I think that um, it's necessary, you know, for each individual to understand that critical hope doesn't ask you to be hopeful all the time. Mm-hmm. Critical hope doesn't demand this consistent um, uh, perpetual relationship because it is just that it's a relationship that moves, that changes depending on what's happening in your life and what's happening in the society around you, the world mm-hmm. around you. So I think in that way, it's, it's a practice and it is something that we are allowed, you know, if hope is not, if hopefulness is not something that serves us in that moment. And I've, I've been through, you know, moments of despair and I I've been alongside people who have as well. And you can't tell them to just be hopeful. That's, that's a completely, um, it's tone deaf and it is uh, not realistic sometimes when people are tired or they've experienced Mm -hmm. incredible loss. You know, and so I, I think that critical hope really does, there is a sturdiness in it because it's all it's always there for you to pick back up when when you're ready. Thank you. And I, you know, there were times that this book just took my breath away, Kari. I had to put wow. it down and I had to just let the power of some of the stories that you tell, including your own, sink in and I could feel it working on me, right? I could feel myself examining myself, examining the conditions that I'm in. And I really want the heart of this conversation to be about your journey uh, as a young woman in Africa and examining and how you're experiencing experiences there inspired parts of this book where you examined your power and privilege. And then you bring this other story in of a colleague named Aisha, uh, a Somali activist in Canada with you. And just the contrast of those two Mm -hmm. were so profound for me. So let's start with Mm -hmm. you, right? You're this 20 year old uh, and you decide that you're going to save your nickels from waitressing. And yeah. <laughs> you are going to go to, uh, did you go to Uganda first? What was the No, first? I started in Ghana. Ghana is where in I Ghana. had my first okay. introduction to, yeah. Right. So you decide, I'm going to save my nickels and I'm going to pack my bag and I'm going to go to Ghana and what? What was your, <laughs> what was your vision as a 20-year-old? So as a 20-year-old, um, 
and I went, uh, I was working with another server at the, at the, we worked at this pub with like cheap wing night and we saved our money for months and months. And I re I just remember thinking, um, I'm going to, I am a kind person and I am going to go do a kind thing, which is to volunteer in Africa. Mm -hmm. And in my mind at that time, Africa was one big place. Um, you know, I had, I had read these very romanticized versions of what that place of Africa was. And, um, you know, it doesn't, I, I think you can speak to a lot of people who go with these intentions that are quite naive. And, um, I think many people will tell you something similar, but I'll tell you how I felt, which was I, I arrived in this rural village in, um, in Ghana called Ajura and, I was there to volunteer in an elementary school and I don't know if I had thought about it, but I did not speak the language when I arrived. Shocking. Kind of important, I know. right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and as if you're going to be teaching children. So, you know, I'm there and there are local teachers who speak the language, who know the children and their families, who are experts in the curriculum. And I, you know, I, I have since then thought, how the heck and why the heck would anybody let me, 20-year-old me, show up and, and think that I had anything to offer in this space? Um, and it was an important uh, moment for me to start. It, it was a bit of a slap to figure out, like, I have to do some unpacking of my own. And, and it, it wasn't just the unpacking that happened in that moment. It's been decades, right. you know, in, in the, of, of that reflection mm -hmm. of what it means to be a white person um, and, and the privilege that that carries in those spaces, but also to have a Canadian passport, to have the socioeconomic status, to be able to leave if things get hard. Um, yes. there, there's so much to that. Yeah. There is an, you know, the story unfolds and I like the detail that you gave that even before you left Canada, as you were sharing with your community that you were going to Africa, that people were giving you donations and money for your trip. Mm -hmm. And you really go deep into your condition, your conditioning rather as a female bodied person, like to be this nice girl and to do a do-gooder and all of that. And that part of your uh, conditioning that you later reflected on and grew uh, and released mm -hmm. some of that. So how did it go for you uh, when you started working with these children? Well, um, I very quickly realized that I was just going to defer to the, the local teachers because I, I was really just on the sidelines as, as it should have been. But I, in that section you're referring to, I, I, I think I called it complexifying kindness. Mm -hmm. But so much of what I had come to expect of that experience came from just the, the social accolades of being the person. And at, now it is a lot more common for people to go do volunteer work abroad. But at the time, um, I knew very few people who were, who were going to um, East or West Africa mm -hmm. to, to do this type of thing. And boy, did I get, I got a lot of extra tips for it. Um, when I was serving, I got um, just lots of pats on the back. It was, it was very uh, affirming. And I think that, um, you know, in the time since then, the part, the complexifying kindness thing, it, it is examining, am I doing this for them or am I doing this for me? Because 
in hindsight, I was very much doing it for me. I was doing it to feel good about myself, to feel um, like I was worthy, to feel um, like I had something to offer. Because if I didn't have anything to offer really at the time in Canada, then understandably, I also don't have anything to offer in, in a Ghanaian context, right? So I think sometimes we we really, um, and when I say we, I think I just mean privileged Westerners. Mm-hmm. We overshoot what we think we have. And, and I think a lot now I educate students. Um, I, I, you know, run courses and pre-service um, sessions on unpacking your privilege before you go on these types of excursions and really thinking about um, how are you going to be led by the people who live there? How are you going to um, really all the way through, even when you're being treated with tremendous privilege, how are you going to consistently return and interrogate that every night, even when, um, even when, for example, white supremacy is living through the people that you're encountering mm-hmm. in that space? So, um, yeah, it's an ongoing journey and it's something that needs to be like consistently returned to over and over. Right. And you described some of the impact that first visit when you didn't have the right mindset and you brought gifts and the issues that caused in the community, like Mm -hmm. the kids fought over the toys, the toy ended up at the market because what they really need maybe was food (laughs) or some other good versus a toy. And, um, just say more about like the impact that that has in communities when you aren't really coming in, uh, working alongside the leaders in the community and clear about what you're bringing to the table. There are so many examples um, of, I I think one of the really important parts, I I did my PhD dissertation on something similar to this topic, Mm -hmm. but one of the important parts is that the, the, the fabric of a community it changes when outsiders come in, it, it, regardless of who those outsiders are. The fabric of the community it shifts and 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 moves, and then um, there are all sorts of impacts that you might not even recognize. So you can, you know, I, I use the example of that My Little Pony that someone had given me, like, oh, will you give this to? to someone on your trip, like someone in the community where you're going. And it was like, sure. And I, I gave it to this little girl. Well, that, you know, it created this fight amongst the children. The little girl ran away crying because someone else took it. And then, you know, who knows what else happened after that moment to, for me to be able to see it at the market the next day, right. For sale. Because that was it was something that was coveted, but it was not something that is that has value. Mm-hmm. It was coveted, but it didn't have value. And here I was, an outsider, put like bringing this thing. And I th- I think the material, like the symbol of that pony. <laughs> I, I think we can look at ourselves when we place ourselves as people into a community. Um, we can have those same impacts without realizing it. And, and so thoughtfulness is a thoughtfulness about what the long-term impacts could be of our presence somewhere is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, But also just um, I can't stress enough how, how vital it is in these excursions to just have local community leaders who are the ones who lead it and also who decide 
they are the gatekeepers of their own community. Mm-hmm. If they want you there, they ought to have the right to say yes and no. And one of the things I, I do in community engaged research work is we talk about um, the ethics of working in and with community and and sometimes community has in place, certain communities actually put in place their own um, paperwork that outsiders need to go through before they can work with them or the, their own ethics check- checklist of what others need to be doing before they mm-hmm. encounter them in a, in a stage of research or for learning purposes. And I just think all of that is, is so important to consider when we, um, when we are at that really, what can be a beautiful juncture between cultures, between um, different levels of privilege and socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be beautiful and it can be very harmful. And, and I think there's, to discount either of those would be to not not take up the complexity of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's just this natural curiosity between people. And there is value with that if you have the right heart and mind. And you kept yeah. going back to Africa. So tell us yeah. about like all of the countries that you visited. And I think this was part of your dissertation research. And um, and then we'll get to the big ending in Africa. But you didn't <laughs> okay, stop there sure. as a 20 year old. You kept going. No, back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I kept going back. I, I think I've gone about six times for, you know, times between one month to six months at a time mm-hmm. um, in different countries. Yeah, I was going to say Africa is a big place. And I um, spent more of my even though that first time was in Ghana, I also backpacked on a very shoestring budget through, um, I think it was like nine or 10 countries on in East Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I won't name them all because I think the important part is that what I got from, from returning over and over, what I started to develop um, a sense of, of community, particularly in the area of Rwanda and Uganda. And that's where mm-hmm. I did my master's research and also my PhD research, but um, I sometimes feel uncomfortable with like framing my story in relation to Africa because I, I just think it's it's like this overused trope of, right. of like what nice Western white girls do in order to feel good about themselves. And and I hate to sound like cynical when I say that, but I I, I think that it's it's like one part of the story. But if anything, um, my experiences in East Africa have been the educator of me. Mm-hmm. Um, they have educated me through those processes. And and I believe in ways that have made me a lot more humble and uh, a lot more um, focused on the work that I can do here in Canada, where mm-hmm. I do know the language, where I do. Um, yes where I have, where I have something I can, I feel that I can offer. Right. And to the we don't, around me. we don't have to look far, right. For that, um, for places to do work in our communities. Exactly. However, I would like to fast forward now to your Koyo Chowki imperative moment. And that's okay. a term uh, <laughs> coined by uh, Enzaldua. And um, maybe we should start by just explaining to folks who don't know the story of Koyo Chowki. Um, would you sure. like to tell it or would you like? Sure. Yeah. No, I um, So in the book, I talk, I have a section called Fracture. And yes. I, I won't go into explaining like the broader context of that. But 
Um, so Gloria Anzaldúa was a queer Chicana feminist who was prolific and wrote about the Coil Shalki imperative. And Coil Shalki was um, in Aztec religion was the goddess of the moon and the stars. And the way that she became that uh, that goddess, I suppose, was uh, she was violently dismembered and chopped up and, and thrown up into the night sky and her head became the moon and the parts of her body became the stars. And um, I think Gloria Anzaldúa unpacks the violence that, that she endured, but also the healing that, so the Coil Shalki imperative is the healing that happens as we remember ourselves and start to try to pull our, uh, the pieces, the broken and shattered pieces mm. of ourselves back together. But I think what really strikes me about that story, certainly in the context of my own experience, was that you don't pull yourself back together by making it the same thing again. You, you can never be the same small thing that you were. And the way that you pull yourself together again is to step back and expand your purview of the entire of the entire mm. picture and suddenly all those spaces between the darkness and the spaces between the piece the broken pieces of ourselves become such an important part of what makes us big and what makes us expansive mm. and i i was just so inspired by um Gloria Anzaldúa's work, and and I kind of built it out or built it into this this concept uh, within the fracture section. Yeah, you mentioned her throughout the book, actually, and I really appreciated yeah. that. A lot of people are familiar with her work. In that section, fracture, you also say that uh, fracture is the fastest catalyst, you know, event to hope or the Koyochalki imperative, right? And you had one of those moments. Uh, while you were on a trip to Africa. And that was one of the parts of the books that just took my breath away. One, that your story is so powerful, but two, that you told it the way that you did. You could tell that you had really sat with and um, and had that embodied inquiry, something else that you talk about in the book through your experience. And it transformed itself into something bigger and eventually this book that we're talking about today. So could you talk about your personal fracture uh, that was a huge catalyst for more sure, embodied yeah. wisdom, for more critical hope in your life? Yeah, absolutely. I um, So <laughs> I was, I had finished a quite a few months of field work in, in the village where I had been doing, conducting my doctoral research. And this was in 2017. And I was on the home stretch. I was, uh, my flight out of Uganda was about three days later. And I, I felt a familiar something in my body, some kind of an aching. And I had had malaria a couple of times uh, already on previous trips. So I knew what it felt like. I went to the doctor that day and it was confirmed that I did have malaria. Um, but I also had an E. coli infection. And so I came back to the hostel where I was staying and I was in the restaurant just trying to um, eat a little bit of food. And I felt. Um, I just felt my chest go like my, 
my heart just stopped beating. And I just remember looking down at my chest and thinking, why is this happening? And it, it, it turned into just sheer panic. And mm-hmm. I, I genuinely felt like I was dying all of a sudden. And my very first thought was I have to get out of this. It was like just an outdoor restaurant of the hostel where I was staying. And my thought was, I have to get out of here and away from people. And, um, that was the last thing I remember was that intention. And what happened in that moment, according to others who saw it was that I, um, stood up very quickly to try to run out of the restaurant, but I lost consciousness once I stood up and I, um, I fell, I fainted on a tile floor and I, on the way down, I, I hit my chin on, on a bench and then on the tile floor. And, um, I ended up breaking my, uh, my jaw in multiple places. I split it right in half here and the skin had opened up all the way down to the bone. And then I, it broke here and here. Um, and I broke a bunch of my teeth um, when they smashed together. And somehow I managed to break my hands in multiple places because mm-hmm. they fell on top of my hands. Um, but, you know, that I don't remember that particular fall because I was having this intensely um, yes. just spiritual experience where I was being welcomed home. Um, it just... It, I sometimes am reluctant to get into this conversation because it, it was, it's just my experience. And what right. I felt was a, a complete and utter euphoria and it was beautiful. And it was, it was, there was whis- sounds of whispering, like excited whispering. And it was just like, I, I was sinking into this whirlpool of love. There's no other way to describe it. I was in a whirlpool of love and everyone I had ever known there were, there weren't people, but there was, there was the feeling of everyone I've ever loved. And, um, then something changed like the, the, the floating feeling shifted and I was just pushed up. And then I, I just remember I feeling like I came into my body and there I was, and I was, I was on the floor in a hostel in Uganda and there were, you know, dozens of people gathered around me looking very worried. And I just remember my mouth was full of blood and I thought I had rocks in my teeth, like, but they were my broken teeth that were in my mouth and Mm -hmm. people are yelling and saying she's been sick. And, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, printed itself on me, you know, Mm -hmm. the, I, I, the longer term reflection on this has been that, you know, you can't, expect to go places and, and without being imprinted upon. And I think in, in many ways that there was something to learn from this. And I had the, you know, I was in a position where the university I was attending, um, gave me, you know, was sending funds so that I could be um, supported to get out of the country. I had, I knew a doctor in the country who was willing to fly home with me. Um, there were so many levels of, of privilege that came into being so that I could get to safety. Um, and, and it's something that I have unpacked a lot. But at the same time, my Ugandan community partner, Dana Himbasibwe, um, he came from the village immediately and he, he was at my bedside immediately in the mm-hmm. hospital in Uganda. And it gave him, I think, an opportunity to truly um, 
care for me and, and take care of, of me in, in such a way where I was very vulnerable and broken. And I think that that dynamic really created a closeness with us as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a in, lot I could say about it. Yeah. Are you still in contact with him? I am. Yeah. I actually just, yeah. And I just go- sent a copy of the book uh, to him. He got the first. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, then you go on to talk about, Kari, um, your healing journey, right? And I think that's where the book really begins. And that's where uh, Critical Hope and this idea that fracture, like births, um, new possibilities. And it was your doctor. I really appreciated the brief chapter or just section about how your doctor, this trained surgeon who is very (laughs) matter of fact about it, right? Yeah that putting you back together and you endured a lot, a lot of surgeries, a lot of suffering to be put back together. And he was the one, I think, that sort of planted that idea that the expectation is not to go back to whatever it was before. And in that moment, Mm -hmm. or in that experience, that's when you had your Koyochowki moment, right? When you became the moon and the stars and new possibilities opened uh, for you in your life. And that yeah. part of the book was so powerful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I want to shift it a little bit, though. Uh huh. Yeah, go ahead and finish if you had a, a closing remark just about that moment for you. No, I, I think it was just a, a really important part of my PhD research. You know, like I remember thinking this is somehow data that I needed to learn and integrate into my dissertation because this didn't happen for no reason. It happened during like when I was collecting fieldwork data about global Mm -hmm. engagement and education and inequality. So what do I have to learn about those things from this experience? And it it did become part of my data set. You also have talked about the body being a data set, like our lived experiences, our embodiment is a data set. And, um, And certainly you became part of your own research, which is powerful uh, in that way. And then not everyone has the same experiences, though, with hopefulness, right? This turned into the moon and stars for you. And uh, you went on, you're a professor, your career launched, you've written a book. Mm-hmm. And a turning point is when you start talking about the way that not everyone experiences hope in the same way. And you tell the story of Aisha Dahir, a Somali Canadian activist who really talks about um, the enormous amount of grief and anger that she holds. And it's not exactly hopelessness, but it's like, I can't even get to that because I'm so busy surviving. I'm so busy taking care of my community like really doing the critical work there in Canada with immigrant communities who uh, are having all sorts of challenges and also uh, returning home to Somalia after many years and seeing how it had changed. And so um, I want you to talk about that some more through Aisha's story, like how not everyone has access or the privilege to have um, an outcome. Yes, an outcome an outcome from yeah. their Koyochowki imperative. Some people mm-hmm. live for long periods, dismembered, traumatized, right? Right, yeah. 
When I, when I was thinking about the people in my life who inspired me and inspired the work of this book, Aisha is someone who came to mind and I reached out to her and she said, Kari, I will, I will absolutely talk to you for this book, but I have to tell you, I don't really feel very hopeful. And, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you want to hear what I have to say about how I feel about hope. And, and I thought, absolutely that like, that is the not feeling hopefulness is part of critical hope (laughs) because what Aisha brought to the forefront was that, you know, she, she's at the intersection of so many different identity markers that, that she really felt made her just one thing after another, Um, you know, being a, a, a Somali Canadian, um, being a woman, being um, a, a mm-hmm. visible, visible Muslim. So the, she just talked about, she re- kept returning to feeling tired and just so tired that, that if there is a hopefulness for her, it is not uh, a hopefulness that things will get better for everyone like her. It's just that maybe I can improve a little bit of my life and it would just be for me and myself. And I can leverage some of the privilege I have being in Canada and make my life a little bit better, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. carry through. She said to, to everyone in her community. So there's a hopelessness in that when she feels like she can't make, make things better for all of her people. And I think another thing she talked about in our conversations was just, you know, she brought up the experience of of going to and in her case Somalia with these naive intentions or as she described them like these intentions that she didn't realize had been socialized into her about being a a western savior character Mm -hmm. even for her as a Somali woman um she it had been so quite a while since she had been back but she did unpack you know, how those ideas that she was so good at critiquing that she didn't even realize that she had, she had started to embody that like savior mentality as well. So um, I I think it, it provides a really interesting juxtaposition to some of the other narratives in the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those two stories were really the ones that uh, I think, and for any reader, and I hope all of you get the book and read it. It is uh, very timely for the for the world we're living in today. I began, that's why I had to put it down. I began to think about the ways that I maybe have had a savior complex working in community mental health, being exhausted, much like Aisha. How do you say her name? Aisha? Is it Aisha? Aisha, yeah. Aisha, Aisha. Much like yeah. Aisha, I really identify with Aisha. And this idea that you're, you you could have a little bit of hope for yourself, but when you know that your community and the world is suffering in the way that it is, mm-hmm. like it's just like a candlelight versus the stars yeah. and the moon, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. in the times we're living, we're, we're in a pandemic, we have a war, raging and there are always wars um you know people are still dying from police violence there's asian hate we could go on and on about all the reasons to be hopeless right um how can we use and you outline some of the steps and how we can use critical hope as a practice 
And you delineate that from being a praxis and being a practice. And so I would like for you to talk a little bit about how we practice critical hope, not just for ourselves, but for the world that we're living in right now and why it's so important to hold it the way that Besta does. That's why I'm glad we started with (laughs) your grandma, right? All of that wisdom that life has given us through our experiences uh, and still having hope and and staying fresh for the future uh, that we're co-creating. Well, I I think the number one thing I would say is that it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, If I learned anything through talking to all these inspiring people in in my book, it's that everyone everyone holds fast to something different. You know, I was just talking today to um, the Vaughn family, um, Jarrett and Ashley, who have a, a daughter who has Um, a lot of severe disabilities and uh, much of their life has been doing advocacy work um, for her and for other children with disabilities. And for them that come, you know, the strength and the critical hope that they practice comes from their faith, from their Christian faith Um, and their faith in God to hold them and carry them through a lot of that. And, um, and that's just one story. I, you know, my friend Nishila talks about, you know, she's, she's a Muslim woman and she talks about raising children in these intentional ways and the idea of vicegerency and really being um, stewards of the earth and teaching her small children about caring for the planet from such a young age. And, um, and she's a stay at home mom who has such an important job of, of planting these seeds of, of care in our youngest generation, you know, and, and, and I suppose one of the messages that, that came through to me through writing this book was that everybody has a role to play. You just have to look around at how are you a leader in your life? Everybody's a leader in their own life in some way. Somebody looks up to you, um, whether it's in a workplace, in your family, in your friend group. And so how can you leverage that and, and cultivate and practice um, critical hope in ways that are, that are genuine to who you are? Um, mm-hmm. And I know, I know that I talk about, I, we had promised to talk about the seven principles of critical hope and we're almost at a full hour and we haven't talked about the principles, but well, they're on the back of the book. Them. And yeah, yeah, I'm happy to outline them. So the, the first principle is that hope is necessary, but alone, it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just really comes from Paulo Freire's original conception of critical hope. Um, but also critical hope isn't something you have, it's something you practice. And the inspiration from this uh, actually came from, from Ashley Vaughn, who I was talking to, and she said, you know, I couldn't do this without... Um, it's not something I have because you can lose it if you have it. It's something you do. It's something you wake up and choose to do every day. And some days you don't choose to do it. Mm-hmm. Some days you come back to it later. So um, the uh, third one is that critical hope is messy, uncomfortable, and full of contradictions. Yes, that's the one I, I hope I, you rest on a little <laughs> bit here and talk more about. Yeah. Yes. Well, for me, it's... it. it it is not a comfortable space to live in this in this um, place of tension all, all the time mm-hmm. of constantly thinking about um, the possibilities of what could be in the same space as the realities of what it is, what are, what is actually mm-hmm. happening, and what is likely to continue happening if we're honest with ourselves. 
Um, but we it, it's kind of like this, this discomfort of, of potentially all our efforts might not amount to anything, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean you can stop trying. Um, and the, the messy part and the full of contradictions, I remember being asked during my, um, during graduate work to identify my theoretical framework. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking, what the heck is a theoretical framework? And I was supposed to choose like one way of looking at the world. And I thought, well, I can't just choose one. There's so many beautiful things, but, oh, but you have to choose because this contradicts with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe part of the reason I love critical hope is because it, it holds that's things are complex and there are multiple truths that coexist in the same space. Mm -hmm. And, and it is not comfortable to accept that, but it, it it's what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that contradictory um, understanding of critical hope is, is pretty important. It is. And you bring it together so beautifully in the book. You do. Thank you. Thank so you. then number four, critical hope is intimately entangled with the body and the land. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, speaking of the land, um, you did a beautiful land acknowledgement before we started. And I want to mention that I'm coming to you from the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the uh, Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. And I know Cinco de Mayo is a day of celebration for many folks. And um, May 5th is also a really important day in Canada mm. because we are, it's called Red Dress Day. And um, we today uh, think about and memorialize all of the missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Um, so for me, this is like something I have continuously thought about throughout this book is how am I always paying attention, not only to the land, but to the connections that land has to people and communities and what it means to, um, to steal land from people and, and, and the impacts, the multi-generational impacts that that can have. And so I'm wearing a red dress today in honor of, of red dress day for that reason. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you asked me about that one. And particular. thank you for sharing that. I, I think I have some homework to do about red dress day and certainly we could all educate ourselves more and support um, the movement to uh, stop the violence against Indigenous women who are missing and murdered at incredible rates in the United States, and I'm learning from you also in Canada. And um, I think that's a yeah. place that all of us can put some critical hope energy toward. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you, um, if we just go down the line here, I don't know that we need to go through all of them. Uh, we sort of touched on um, anger and grief have a seat at the table. People are angry yeah. and grieving right now. Like, so how as a yeah. society can we grapple with uh, yeah. critical hope when like Aisha, like there is so much despair? Mm -hmm. Well, first off, I don't have an answer to any of this. I want to make it clear that I am not an expert right, on how to, yeah. And, and the, you know, anger and grief seat at the table. I worded it that way because it is the spirit of hospitality. It's not just tolerating the existence of, you know, this concept of tolerance is it's not good enough because instead 
there needs to be some understanding that if we um, treat things like anger and grief with a sense of hospitality, we stand to learn so much more from them. Mm -hmm. If we sit at the table with them, if we treat them as equals, if we um, really stop to consider what they're teaching us in that moment. And, um, and, and I think, you know, I talk about Rumi's poetry. Um, I open the book with a, a quote from Rumi, but also he has this poem called love as a guest house. And he talks about how, you know, emotions move through our, move through our house and, and, and you leave the, you know, you leave the door open and you invite them in and you spend time with them and they will eventually leave. It's this idea of impermanence. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, also to acknowledge that, that, um, some people have those visitors a lot more often. And, um, I think we can't detract from that as well. Mm-hmm. Listening to you made me think of uh, the metaphor of the Billie Holiday song, you know, good morning, heartache, sit down, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's there's a lot of power in that. Uh, and certainly healing comes through being able to name and have your feelings, right? So this invitation, like I see you. I see you depression. I suffer from depression sometimes. I can see it coming around the corner. I can see it. I can say, okay, sit down at the table, mm-hmm. but you can't stay, right? Yeah. I see you're here yeah. now, but you can't stay. Don't make yourself at home. And that's when the work begins. The healing work begins to recover. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, how do you end the book? Um, I know that you touch on a chapter with neurobiology, which is very interesting. And um, you, in the conclusion, I love that you start uh, with this line, beautiful writing, there's mysticism in the future. And so you say the past and present leave material evidence, signs that cultivate a sense of knowing about the world, but the future is lacking any sort of evidence in the way that the Western ways of knowing like to know things. Can you expand mm-hmm. upon that? Well, I think that one of the, the reasons I've been so drawn to thinking about or studying hope is, is that it is a future-oriented, whether you want to call it an emotion or a feeling, like it's so future oriented. So we have so much, so much evidence of the past in, you know, in the form of fossils, in the Mm -hmm. form of books that people have left in the form of, of oral histories. We have so much evidence of the past and we have a lot of evidence of, of the present. We, we, you know, I, I talk in the book about like tongue kisses and having, you know, having your toes in the mud and like we have constant reminders of what it is to be like the evidence of being alive right now I can put Mm -hmm. I can put my finger here and feel my heartbeat but what you know what do we have what evidence do we have of the future there there's I can't think of any evidence that we have other than our own imaginations Mm -hmm. and uh, other than than what we actively construct and project that will happen in the future. And so I, I think that's part of the reason critical hope is so important, um, mm. both for people's, Paulo Freire calls it the ontological need 
that people have. So it's part of our being that we need hopefulness to, to be in the world. But also from a material perspective, to be able to change systems that cause suffering, to be able to change systemic inequality, we have to have a vision, an affirmative vision. Um, Critique is important and we have to understand what's not working, but we have to have that affirmative vision of what we do now. How do we change it and what makes it better? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I know I see that we're out of time, but I wanted to just close with that. Thank you. Well, Kari, your book is a gift, a gift to all of us and something that I will return to again and again. And I think that uh, for if there are any educators online, I think it's very appropriate uh, for the classroom. I think there is a lot here uh, to have critical dialogue with your students and a lot of learning. And I want to read it again already. Right. They're just wow. these. I want to quote you, actually. There were things that I underlined. I just want to put that on my email, like uh, (laughs) at the end of my email. I don't do that kind of thing. But some of the ways, um, some of your words were so beautifully written and inspiring. And I wish you all the success uh, with this book. I hope that people uh, get a copy right away and, and find your joy in it. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our audience today? No, I I just so appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. And um, this really, this is my first time talking publicly about something that I I put a couple of years of heart and soul into. So um, it's a gift for me as much as it's a gift for, for you, as you mentioned, but I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lau Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.